0: And then I started working for one of the largest state owned Chinese manufacturers, so the Chinese government, uh, doing their North American export market. And I was always trying to find, um, you know, bridging uh, the gap between uh, a U.S. buyer and Chinese suppliers. And I was always trying to, you know, find a supplier that I could sell product into the U.S. Um, and I tried things like uh, oil, like the, uh, the used oil that they use in fryers at McDonald's. Like there's a huge market for biofuel for that. Um, I tried offering like China consulting services, China marketing reports based on like the, the time I was having in China and nothing really worked. Welcome to the e-commerce momentum podcast, where we focus on the people, the products, and the process of e-commerce selling today. Here's your host, Steven Peterson.
1: Hey, wanted to take a second to talk about Gay Lisby and Gary Ray's Amazon seller tribe and their daily lists that are put out, um, and incredible stories that you can read if you go out and check out uh, amazingfreedom.com forward slash momentum hyphen arbitrage. I know that's a lot to put in there. Amazingfreedom.com forward slash momentum dash arbitron, and you're going to get 14-day free trial. No money risk, no, no challenges. You don't want it. When you're done, you get out. But imagine getting a list um as Greg fellows like to call it mailbox money. I love that term mailbox money. It's where you can work from your house, buy things online, have them delivered to you, and then sell them on uh, various marketplaces. But imagine you can have somebody else do that for you. so you want to buy time, you want to control uh what they're buying. Well, you take these lists and you can join multiple lists if you're interested, and then you can segregate them for the merchandise you want and send them to them. They can make purchases for you on your behalf, have it delivered to you or delivered to them for prep, boom, sent into these marketplaces and you could sell. How about that? Wouldn't that be awesome? I spoke at their conference and there were so many million dollar sellers just using online arbitrage. It's still available. And again, 14 days. The only way you're going to get 14-day free trials if you come through my link. Um, it is an affiliate link. Uh, they do pay me, so I don't want to mislead you in any way. Um, I would appreciate it, but I'd like to see you try the 14 days. I've had so many people that have joined have so much success. It's very exciting to me and you know, quite humbling to me um, that they trust me to recommend this group. And I 100% recommend this group. I've seen the results. These are great people that will also teach you to fish. This isn't just a, hey, here's the list, you're on your own. No, this is, hey, here's why that wasn't a good deal. Or here, hey, there's another opportunity. And you get to join their groups. And it's just a phenomenal group of people, Um, just great, great uh, leaders in that group. And these lists are phenomenal. So again, it's amazingfreedom.com forward slash momentum hyphen arbitrage. Amazingfreedom.com forward slash momentum hyphen arbitrage. Use that, get two weeks free, try it. You don't like it, drop out. But give it a shot if you want to add that to your business. Welcome back to the E-commerce Momentum Podcast. This is Episode Three Hundred Ninety-Seven, Brian Miller. Very, very cool story. Um, if, you know, first off, he's so far away, and 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 you know his story is just so interesting on how he figured out how to get there. Uh, had to find himself. And it sounds like he found himself, but not as fast as most people would want, right? They go, hey, I need to find myself by Friday. I got bills to pay. No, life doesn't work that way. And it's just so cool how, you know, he's raw and honest and he talks about some of his successes, but he talks about some of his failures. And I think you got to realize everybody has failures. If you don't think they have failures, they're not telling you. And he talked about most people aren't raw and honest with their uh what's going on and so i think that's really smart but then he gets into the technical stuff his experience i mean he's only 33 but he's got tremendous experience working in manufacturing uh, learning how it works, learning the Chinese language, and then applying that in, eventually in his own business. And there's a couple of real powerful statements that he makes um, about you know, earning money while you're working for someone else even when you don't have that business idea. That's so smart. Knowing that it's going to come. Believing it's going to come because you're going to be successful. you just got to figure it out. I think there's really a lot there. And then at the end, um, he gives some more really solid advice. And so, you know, listen all the way through. You might want to listen to that part twice uh, because, again, very wise beyond his years. Let's get into the podcast. All right. Welcome back to the e-commerce Momentum Podcast. I'm excited about today's guest. This is an early interview for me because it's a late interview for him. Welcome, Brian Miller from China. Welcome, Brian.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate but, uh, that I'm on the show.
1: That's not the way you usually introduce, from China, Brian Miller. <laughs> <laughs> uh, especially because you're from Connecticut. Um, that's a little bit of a, a leap to get from Connecticut to China. I'm sure there's no straight path in that story, and I'd, I'd love to hear more about it.
0: Sure, yeah. Um, so I grew up my whole life in Connecticut, and, um, I actually graduated college during the o eight crisis. ooh, um and that was uh, pretty tough for everyone to get a job, of course. Um, oh, what were you going to do I, what I,
1: What did you study?
0: I studied business at the time so okay, so I was a business, business and you
1: were going to be what what was it your dream before the two thousand and eight disaster?
0: That's hard to say. I I was very interested in finance and Wall Street. I was always close living in Connecticut to a lot of people that worked in the industry. Um, so I was kind of always thinking about that. But to be honest, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And that's why I left the U.S. Um, So I was kind of a lost um, college graduate at that time.
1: You know, looking back, just thinking backwards, um, and a lot of your friends, um, and I know Wall Street's up and down, so I'm sure if they lost, lots of them have gained. Do you have regrets when you think about it? Because you could have stuck it out and, you know, did the uh, menial job for a while and then eventually find your way when you think about it now from where you're at.
0: Um, not now. I mean, during the journey, during some of the struggle of the up and down of starting my businesses, you could say that I was thinking, oh, it would be nice to just like um, sit in a in an office uh, at a big company that's pretty stable and life would be so much more, uh, let's say, less stressful. Uh, you can clock out at the end of the day. Um, so during some of those times, I would say yes. But now that Uh, The business has proved to be successful. Um, I think I'm very happy that I went the path that I went.
1: And we're going to get into that story. But thinking about your friends, now you're 33. So you've got friends that have chose the other path. How many of them are happy in that life that you described um, pre-China? In that big company, you know, no stress. Hmm.
0: You know, it's hard to say because I think everyone's biased, you know, they, they might say that they're happy, um, doing those things and they might be, uh, but it's hard to tell because I find a lot of people are not very, uh, raw with, 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 you know, describing the the truth of what's really happening in their lives and what they're, you know, struggling with. Um, so I would say a, a good amount are happy, but I still have a lot of friends that are not happy. They're trying to find that business to start. Um, they're trying to find that that idea that they can kind of get out of that that job. So I see both sides, um, but I see a lot of people that are trying to get out as well.
1: It's interesting you mentioned that. So a lot of people, the, the out they see is their own business. It's not getting to a new company that's a better company or what have you. They're saying, I want some freedom.
0: Yeah, I think for me at least, that's the most valuable part of starting my own business was – um, even though I'm making more money than I did at my previous job, I would argue that that's not uh, the most value I get out of my business. The value that I get personally is the freedom that comes with it. Even though I work way harder than I did before, I do what I love and I could you know, take a vacation whenever I'd like. Uh, I could take a day off or entertain a guest when they come to China. Um, so that is something that I really uh, appreciate of having my own business.
1: You know, it, it, it is interesting. You say that What it, the phrase is what I work 80 hours a week, so I don't have to work 40 hours a week or some crazy story <laughs> like that. You know, it's like, yeah, I guess that's uh, I can relate right now, especially. Um, all right, well, let's get into some of the struggles. Now, let me just qualify this and say that Brian is an FBA seller. Okay. So he knows what he's talking about. He's, he's got a, a vast level of experience at his age. I mean, it's very impressive to think um, because I always say e-commerce are like dog years, you know, it's a year in it. You're, you're, you're really a long time in it. Um, so you've done quite a few things that have built you to that place. But let's talk about, let's talk about the struggles. Let's start there because I think, I think people, and you, you correct me if I'm wrong. I think people think it's a straight path, Boom, you get out of college. It's a straight path to you create a business. Maybe you stumble a little bit, but boom, it's an instant success. I don't know many of instant successes. I'm sure there are some. Um, I've not seen many. So, you, like most, Steve, have had many challenges, many challenging businesses. So, let's talk about some of them.
0: Yeah, I mean, to start off, at least the FBA business that you could call it successful now, the first two years that a friend, uh, you know, me and a partner that started it, ran the company, we lost money both years. So I remember after the second year, we had uh, lost $13,000. Um, and that was just the beginning of a lot of the struggle to start the whole business. But I was lucky at that time that I uh, kept a job, a full-time you know, corporate job. And that kind of gave me the runway to... Uh, learn while I was, you know, struggling to get it going. And also the runway that when we made mistakes, uh, it wasn't so painful. It didn't, it didn't collapse the business because we were, uh, receiving a paycheck basically every month. So that was like a vital part to kind of get me going, I guess.
1: Um, i want to think about that for a second. When you, uh, give advice to other people. What's your advice now? I mean, knowing what you know, I mean, is it a duh, Steve, of course I say don't quit your job or what, what's your advice?
0: (laughs) My advice always is try to create as much runway for yourself Mm. as possible. So runway could be, uh, working at a job while you start your business. Um, or even if you don't have an idea, but you do want to start a business in the future, it's, save money with the intent that you're going to launch a business at some time. So you have the capital, you have the savings, um, and you're able to weather you know, the first year or two of, of, of storm as you uh, encounter it. Because I think one of the most successful things for me to get started was when I started working at my corporate job, I was saving a lot with the intent of using that money at some time when I had my great idea to, to, to use it for a business.
1: I think that's um, very so preparation powerful. preparation was key. I yeah. think it's powerful. Preparation was key. Because you you're, you're what, I think the point, and I'm sorry to step in on you, but your point is right. If you have money and then you have the idea, you still have to have skills. So, you know, if you don't have money and you're trying to learn those skills, all that takes time and effort. So if you have the money, then you can focus on learning the skills. I think that's very, very smart. Um, And I have not heard it put that way, but I think it's really, really smart to think about it that way. By building that up, knowing that something's going to come, you can work on all the rest of the stuff. Did you put in time learning other things to eventually get that idea?
0: Kind of. I mean, when I was in China, I was always trying to trade something. So I was in China, uh, like, studying. I studied Chinese when I got here. And then I started working for one of the largest state-owned Chinese manufacturers, so the Chinese government, uh, doing their North American export market. And I was always trying to find, um, you know, bridging uh, the gap between uh, a U.S. buyer and Chinese suppliers. And I was always trying to, you know, find a supplier that I could sell product into the U.S., Um and i tried things like uh oil like the uh the used oil that they use in fryers at mcdonald's like there's a huge market for biofuel for that um i tried offering like china consulting services china marketing reports based on like the the time i was having in china and nothing really worked i mean when i started nothing worked until um i got a friend to tell me a little bit about amazon and we came up with an idea of a product that we wanted ourselves. And that kind of, we wanted, it wasn't really available uh, to what we wanted um, as a product. And we decided to make that product on our own. So the start of the business was kind of creating a product that we wanted ourselves and then trying to sell it to other people.
1: Now, you said that that business sounds like it lost money the first two years. Is that normal? I mean, because I I think one of the challenges that I see is new sellers, they do that and it's not successful. Now, losing 13 grand, um, is that not successful or is that what you should expect, um, you know, given, you know, the competition in the marketplace?
0: Yeah, I think at least Amazon is becoming a bit more um, challenging and people are investing more money in the marketing side of things to get products ranked Um, to the top of the pages to get reviews, whether they do them, you know, white hat, gray hat or black hat, you all need capital to kind of get that going. And um, we were doing the same thing. When we started, you can get, uh, you can provide an incentive for a review. So that was a a policy that was accepted. Um, So we were giving away a lot of product uh, for reviews, uh, which was TOS compliant at the time. Um, and after that, it became incompliant to, to do that. But, but I think always to start and get the listing started and to get a reasonable amount of reviews that people trust the product, uh, there is a substantial amount of investment, including the fact that you might have some quality problems when you first start working with a factory. So you might have some product losses. Um, you might have to, you know, fix product. Like you're saying, you're helping some of your clients with, um, so, yeah, there's a lot of things that are tough to see when you start. And I think it's hard to kind of make money in the beginning. You
1: know, it, it, in our pre-call, we were talking about, you know, different clients we have. And two, let me just think about this, two for sure of the seven we have have rework responsibilities for us right now. And that seems pretty normal, even though both have had quality inspections done. Um, and yet, you still have to re- or tweak, and and some of it is improvement, right? You just figure something else out, and it's or somebody else looks at it and it's like, hey, why don't you think about this? And you're like, oh, never thought about that, and then you know, kind of makes sense. So it's interesting. All right, so when you think about what you learn um, from the manufacturing for the state of China, right? I, you know, what I what I envision is, you know, a lot of red tape can get cut because the government is a government. Is that the case or did you still have to, you know, pretty rigid set of rules that you had to follow?
0: Uh, for specifically manufacturing for the Chinese government? Yeah. Yeah, actually, surprisingly, um, the the state-owned com- companies in China at least have a bit of leeway with their ability because they're owned by the state. And so they can kind of do whatever they want, essentially. And that's still um, the case? So- I would say it's still the case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, it's getting, you know, people are arguing that it it hampers competition within China. Um, And small businesses within China are trying to stop this kind of uh, monopoly on some of the industries. Um, However, it's also a huge advantage when you look at their global expansion. So they are able to win projects overseas without worry about profitability. Uh, and they can enter markets without thinking about, you know, whether we're making money on these projects. So, um, yeah, there's huge benefits uh, in international expansion for some of these companies. And they still kind of rule the markets that they serve in China. Um, so we always thought it as an advantage for us.
1: Hmm. And, and is there a particular, you mentioned a couple of industries that they dominate. Are there any that you can name that would be, that we might be surprised by?
0: Um, I would say, I mean, for at least the U S listeners, cause I worked for the rail company, uh, in China. So all the, the company that basically built the high speed rail network oh, in China. So cool,
1: dude. That's cool.
0: Yeah. And, and surprisingly, I mean, Americans don't really think much about using rail, but, but there are cities that have it, um, Metro systems like New York, like Chicago, And um, the Chinese are actually winning a lot of the um, bids for new rail cars in the U.S. Hmm. Um, And they're able to do that because they have such a large balance sheet that they've entered the market and basically obliterated everyone on price because they don't care whether or not they make any money uh, within the first, you know, five years. They just want to uh, build their facilities and take market share. And because they're a state-owned company, they're able to do that. So you could see it even in the U.S. happening. Um, a lot of people probably don't even know it, but they're, they've won uh, New York. No, they haven't won New York. They've won Chicago, L.A., and Boston. They're all making cars uh, for those cities at the moment. Hmm. Um, so, so, yeah, they're, they're powerful companies.
1: <laughs> fascinating. I mean, it really is fascinating to me because that's a long play. When you think about your business, and I'm jumping around here a little bit, but I'm thinking about this. Did that teach you anything? I mean, it is, are you looking at the long play? Because, you know, I understand what you're saying. You know, advertising is becoming such a significant piece on every channel now. I mean, I mean it's expected that you have to run PPC or uh, just just advertising, period, on every channel. I don't care. Even eBay. I mean, everything. You know, nothing sells anymore unless you run advertising. Are you looking more long-term then for your business rather than the short-term, you know, pop an item out, get it to market fast, run as much ads, build as much market share, watch all the competition come in, it declines, move on to the next one? Or are you looking to build brands and say, okay, this has, you know, capacity?
0: Yeah, I, I think I'm more of a long-term thinker in the fact that... um I'm not looking to kind of pump and dump products. Hmm. And I have a unique advantage that I'm in China. So one of the advantages that I like to use on Amazon is that I can spend a lot of time with the factory, kind of optimizing the product and doing that kind of cliche thing of going and seeing reviews, you know, seeing what's wrong with the product and really spending serious time fixing the problem and providing a better product than the other competitors. And I think... By doing our products like that, that's how we launch all of our products. I think they're kind of uh, self-fulfilling in the fact that you're not competing on price and it's a much more long-term orientated uh, strategy. And I think my products will stay longer competitive against a lot of the market. So that's kind of how we approach Amazon. Amazon as opposed to just finding a product and trying to launch it as fast as possible.
1: I think it's really smart. Um, Here's a question related to that. So you're really doing a lot of product monitoring yourself. So you're looking at the companies. You're making sure they're legit. You're making sure that they stay true to what they say. They don't change, you know, stuff. Are you using inspection companies still?
0: I I don't personally. It's funny because when we're here, um, we're able to go to the factories on our own. Um, But I do know a lot of people use companies like uh, Asia Inspection, who just changed their name recently, Um, and some other companies I've uh, heard of, and they've done really good jobs. I actually did an expense inspection for a friend with Asia Inspection, and I thought they did a really good job. So there are good companies that do great jobs uh, inspecting products within China.
1: Because the challenge is, is that sometimes even though, and I think we talked about this in the pre-call, we have uh, some of the clients have inspections and stuff still gets through because it's inconsistent over time. Um, but that probably is the quality of the inspector, right? So you're saying that these particular companies that you see, are they, have they had longevity doing what they're doing? Is that part of the secret?
0: Yeah, I would say that. But I think also one of the problems is because a lot of sellers, um, they might not be, they might not have engineering backgrounds or mm. they might not even understand their product well, that they kind of don't even know how to tell the inspector what to look for. You know what I mean? So right. um, I find a lot of the, the things that people have problems with is when they don't understand their own product's manufacturing process. And since they don't know that, they don't know really where the problems can occur. So that's why it's always recommended, or at least I recommend, um, even if even if there's no problems for a while, you should visit your factory once a if you have the ability to, you know, once a year or twice a year, just to keep up with them and to see what they're doing and to understand, you know, whether or not they're changing the process and where the you know the faults of the the product could occur.
1: Um, are, are there, is there an opportunity with that? You mentioned the engineer. Cause I, I think you're right. I mean, I think it's like, oh, yeah, this little doohickey technical term I use <laughs> moves this piece over here. Right. Is there an opportunity for someone who does have that engineering background to be, you know, you know, there's got to be a, obviously trust and respect in that kind of thing. But, you know, to take that product and, and, and run it through and say, hey, you know, let's take a look at this. I mean, are there services like that or are you aware of any?
0: Yeah, I'm not really aware of any, but what I do or I like to do is take advantage of the factory's own technical capability. And by that, I mean, you know, they have engineers usually or some type of technical people on their staff. Um, And, you know, being able to communicate with that person or in my case, I go to the factory and work with them to develop the product. And if you can kind of work with those people, they're experts on those products because they're making them day in and day out. Um, and if you can get exposure to those people or connect with them on a more regular basis, I think it helps to, for you to understand the, the possibilities of your product. Oh. Um, and, and, you know, they might do, be doing it one way because you just set it, to do it that <laughs> the way the term. He,
1: they understood my yeah, term.
0: <laughs> yeah. Do it this way. But actually if you talk to them, maybe the engineer might say, Hey, have you ever thought about it doing this way? It will reduce your size and weight. It will function better and you know, it'll be cheaper to ship on Amazon or whatever. He probably won't say that, but he, he might have some ideas to help you out, uh, that you never thought about unless you just talk to him. Um, so, so, so that's really an important part if you can, you know, connect with those people at the factories.
1: Now, it kind of helps that you can speak Chinese. I'm assuming that's probably a, <laughs> a, a little bit of an advantage, right? What, yeah, for what sure. What about Steve who doesn't speak Chinese? And, and you know, it, communication, uh, being a man, is not my best uh, uh, skill set, um, I've been told. Um <laughs> the uh, question is how do you get an interpreter to understand I mean because that really kind of makes it complicated, or are factories um, the more sophisticated factories do they have the you know English speaking uh, people on staff what what's your experience?
0: Yeah, I would say if they're a larger factory they usually do because they're doing so much um, export business mm-hmm. um, but it still is important to uh, in some way usually their managers don't speak uh, or a higher level manager doesn't speak English. Um, but it's still important to like either have them in the email thread even if they don't you know understand what you're writing or on calls or at the meetings that you have when you do visit them um, because often the lower level, managers that you talk with or sales managers, they don't have a lot of like push in the factory. Mm. They don't have a lot of power to to make changes. So you still want to even though you don't have that, you know, a language connection with that manager, you still want to somehow always let them know that you're there and that um, that sales manager is like telling them everything that you're saying, Um, because that's really when push comes to shove. If there's a, a problem, those are the people that are really helping out the people that are above those sales managers.
1: You mentioned, um, you know, not doing so hot when you first started, um, and trying to figure things out. And then you mentioned quality being one of your real secret uh, sauce tools that makes you different, right? That's a way you can differentiate, not necessarily on price. Um, because that really does help the review process, organic reviews, right? Or, uh, legit, uh, uh legit reviews. Um, any other takeaways that you have, the things that you're doing right now that you weren't doing right, being honest, and then you wish you – you you know, looking back, you wish you did?
0: Um, gosh, what do we wish we did better? Uh,
1: there's probably a million things that I can't think of <laughs> now, Anything but- just – you know what I'm saying is that basically – I mean – you know, there's obviously something going right for you now. You figured out something, and clearly I get the quality thing. I think that's huge. Um, anything else that just comes to mind that you can, you can offer to a listener?
0: Yeah. Um, I would say um, maybe it depends on how big you are, but, you know, you should um, have some options to diversify your supply chain at some time. Um, I have not, which is kind of probably surprising people probably. Not to think, do as oh, I, I say, God. not as
1: I do. I understand.
0: I've, <laughs> <laughs> I've probably got three factories, you know, making everything. Um oh, so I three is heavily. not
1: diversified.
0: Um, uh, no, three is, but oh. I, I actually don't do it. I have only one factory that oh, okay. manages most of the production for most of my the the biggest brand that I have. And um it is a huge risk. I would say once you get big enough, you should start diversifying um, your supply chain. And, and I'm speaking to myself because I haven't done it. Mm-hmm. Um, because I've had so many late deliveries um, and so many issues with the smaller factory that I work with because of the problems that they have with cash flow, um, that it's oh. hurt my business. I've ran out of inventory um, and I've had issues like that. So I would say once you get some critical scale, you should start looking to diversify your supply chain. And also it will help you with seeing, you know, whether or not you're getting a good price. And, um, it's kind of a, a safety measure just in case one of the factories does not, or goes under, or just starts giving you bad product. Um, so that's one thing I could definitely recommend that we haven't done even, um, that listeners should think about as they go forward.
1: I've not thought about cash flow from their side. It's interesting you mention that because, you know, this is a, inventory-heavy business, so cash flow is always a problem for us. But I've not thought about it from the factory point of view. That's very valid. Um, That's probably the most logical reason to diversify, because usually it's a quality issue. You want to make sure that, you know, you're keeping everybody honest and, you know, quality. You can see the consistency. But you're right. um, That's a big risk. Are you seeing, because their costs keep rising, right? I mean, let's face it, uh, labor costs in China have gone up at least so I've read. Um, so their costs are going up too. Are you seeing more cash flow issues uh, on the on the Chinese side?
0: Yeah, I do. I mean, specifically with my supplier, I do see it. Um, and a lot of the things that you might not know is they also, like, so they give you an MLQ for mm-hmm. your products. But on their supply side, they also have an MLQ. So it's interesting to have that discussion with them, which is like your components for my, for my product, what are your MOQs? Cause I didn't realize when I was making products, we have all different colors that we use. So, you know, black, red, green for our products. And we order like a few hundred of each one. And for those colors, when they make the plastic parts for our product, they buy 3000 units, even if they only get a few hundred order for me. And they're holding inventory of my components. Now, that's because we've been working for so long. But because of my really, you know, small orders of different colors, I didn't realize that I was putting massive pressure on their cash flow because their sub-supply chain required such a high MLQ. Um, so this is something that you can, you know, if you see your factory delivering late, it sometimes could be because of this reason, they don't have enough cash to buy all the stuff. And it's good to have these conversations so that you can find a solution together, how to sort, you know, the inventory of the components out. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it, it, they have the pressure as well.
1: How do you have that conversation? I mean, uh, because I think that I I like what you're saying. Is you know because you assume that it's you know quality. You assume it's shipping. You assume whatever. How do you how do you have that conversation? I mean, is it because you don't want to offend somebody, right? So how how, how does that go?
0: Yeah, this is this is really challenging even for me because I find that Chinese factories are not open because of the fear that you might leave them or you might find another factory. And so they don't like to openly talk about the problems they have, uh, in delivering your orders. And so this is one of the big challenges is that they're always, you know, they're always coming up with an excuse, which is always almost not true. And I think the key is to try to build that relationship with the sales manager or the manager at that company. And try to have more open, honest conversations and see if you can try to get them to open up about the root cause of the problems and, you know, pitch it in a way that, look, you're not going to get mad or you're not going to like find them or you're not going to go find someone else as long as you be open about it and we try to find a solution to it. So I would say that's the best way to approach it. But overall, it's still hard to get them to give up what's wrong.
1: <laughs> well they're they're um, humans, right? We were talking about this in the beginning with your friends. It's hard to get people to oh everything's great, Brian. Everything's great, right? When they're, you know, ready to jump off a bridge, right? That's that's right. that's yeah, the way our yeah. that's yeah. the way we are. So <laughs> why would their culture be any different, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. But but once you do get to that level, you can solve a lot of your delivery problems, um, which which I've done recently, which is I didn't realize I, I do a lot of electronic products and I didn't realize a lot of the chips that they were buying for me, they needed 3000 unit minimum. So if I ordered just over 3000, like 3,100, they'd order 6,000. Oh. So that, so that means like they had to hold like, <laughs> you know, they're, they're holding uh, 2,900 units that I didn't realize they were holding in inventory. Um so, so, yeah, having those conversations can help you improve your delivery times. Well, how's that and, and, relationship-wise? And relationship.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, how did that yeah. help the relationship when you're like, wait, you really care about me? <laughs> no, like you, yeah. you're you actually caring about your manufacturer instead of trying to beat them in every place you can, right? Because that's nature. You actually care? Yeah,
0: I— yeah, and I think it's actually important. I even offered, I mean, people might say, oh, you're crazy. I said, look, if we go over those levels where, like, you need to hold a little bit too much inventory, how about I help you just pay for the component price, like his cost? So if his chip is, like, uh, $3 and he has to hold, you know, a few thousand of them, I'll give him a couple grand for that uh, inventory pressure. Um, so like a deposit, a money right? On my,
1: like a deposit.
0: Yeah, Exactly, and that would go towards the next order, right? So I'm not advocating that you should do it no matter what, but to improve the relationship and to improve your delivery times, it might be worth helping them out a little bit in that way. Um, so it's something you could always think about.
1: But And especially when you find someone that you can trust that has been doing the work for you consistently, right, and the quality is there. I, I, you know, obviously, your quality must be really paramount to them too because they you're helping finance some of their business in essence that's kind of cool
0: right and i and i also think being open to them about your business model too so um one of the big problems we had was they were always delivering late on orders and they didn't think it affected their sales because they were always selling wholesale in the past meaning if they get one wholesale order from one company it doesn't influence the next wholesale order that they get because they're not related to each other. But when you sell on Amazon or when you sell online, if you don't have inventory to sell, you're not selling anything. So therefore you're going to give them less orders in the future, right? Mm. So someone that a factory that has always been used to retail or wholesale orders might not know how much their poor delivery is affecting their own sales. Um, so kind of teaching them how you're se- – not, not showing them how you're selling, but letting them know how it affects their – your ability to give them more orders can help you um, get them more on track in that case.
1: And it's because of velocity, right? Because in the past, the wholesaler would buy it. They'd put it on their shelves in their inventory and, and then sell it over time door out the door with Amazon it it could be how about this though don't you worry I mean this is I'm sure what's going through people's mind that if you give away your business secrets they're just going to copy you and kick you out and just do it themselves and I've seen that happen Uh, I can think of one client that we have that the the manufacturer now sells on Amazon
0: yeah actually this is a big push that Amazon itself has done in China so Amazon has a whole team over the past few years that have been filling up conference rooms with factories and with Chinese people to get more Chinese sellers onto the Amazon platform, because in the end, they're trying to compete with Walmart. So they want as many direct factories to their platform to sell for the lowest, you know, most competitive prices. Um, So, yeah, they've been doing this, and it's definitely a threat to sellers like us because we can never, you know, offer a product as low as the factory. Um, And the logistics that Amazon set up, they have a logistics company, and they offer this logistics service just to factories. So if you're a Chinese factory, Amazon will give you guaranteed delivery times to FBA warehouses through their own um, logistics company. So yeah, this has been a push, and I would say it's definitely something that sellers like us should think about uh, now and into
1: the future. Any advice on how to not insure because there's no nothing, <laughs> but any advice on how to minimize um, that from happening to you? I mean, is that a real supplier trust? Again, I, it, to me, it would be a trust issue, right? If if I'm honest with you, and you know, and I say to you, you know, look, Brian, you're a manufacturer. I'm a uh retailer for lack of a better term. That's my expertise, that's your expertise. Let's continue to partner um and we both win. Is that is that the best advice?
0: Yeah, it's uh, this is hard because I don't really know the right advice. Mm. Um I always see that if if they're going to do it, they're going to do it, you know. Um the only thing I can think of and this is not really something you can choose, but or maybe you could if you can go after or purchase product from smaller suppliers with less resources, ah. they're less likely to go overseas on the platforms. So the suppliers that I buy from, you know, they're 20 to 50 person factories and they just don't have the manpower, or the resource to to be able to coordinate, you know, sales overseas on Amazon and that type of thing. But if you go against a, you know, you buy from a thousand-person factory, they probably have a bunch of people that could do that.
1: And and um, at twenty and twenty and thirty, again, their trade-off is you might have to help them with cash flow. Okay, correct. I mean that's win-win, yeah. right? That's win-win.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So I, for hmm, me, smart. I always, I always go after people. Always would think that I'm going to go after the factories that Walmart buys from or the biggest shiny floors. And counterintuitively, I actually look for smaller factories that are between that size, 20, maybe 20 to 100 people. And the reason is a few things. Uh, the first is since I'm a smaller uh, purchaser as as well, my business means more to them, so I'm a larger portion of their sales. Um, there's less risk that they're going to go around me because they don't have the resource to do it. Um, and they're more willing to make product modifications with you uh because they're kind of more hungry as a smaller supplier they're 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 scrappy and they're trying to uh get bigger right so so I always go after those type of factories when I look to buy
1: from them I think it's really smart um It makes perfect sense when you describe it that way all right since you're not busy enough, you decide to get involved and uh, a 3PL company. So let's talk about that. Um, what was your thinking there?
0: Well, it, actually, I kind of fell into the whole thing. I, When I had left my job and went full-time on my FBA business, I started consulting uh, for e- other e-commerce sellers on how to manufacture in China and kind of bringing them through that process for their own business. And I'd come across a drop shipper that wanted, that I'd done some work for, I'd helped them set up a print-on-demand supply chain in China, and that's printing a product as you receive the order of it. Um, And he was happy with my work, and he wanted me to set up a fulfillment center for him. So the basic idea was for me to basically buy product for him in China, bring it into a warehouse and inventory it, and then when he received orders, we would ship it out. So that was kind of how I started, you know, having this, um, idea or, and I thought it was an interesting idea and I started working, uh, to, to build it. Um, it just so happened that I built the whole thing and two weeks before we were about to launch it, he backed out of the deal. So I had a, I had a warehouse in China, um, and I had an employee and I had a business, uh, like a Chinese setup business and I had no customers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's, that's how the whole idea kind of started. Um, and after that, I reached out to all my friends who were in e-commerce and I said, Hey, I have this warehouse. Um, I can offer shipping services for you. Do you want to try it out? And that's really how I started getting my first clients, including myself, but just shipping for myself wasn't going to be enough. Um, so that's how the idea was born.
1: Well, and it's grown, I mean, because I'm looking through, uh, and and the the site is easychinawarehouse.com. That's the website, and that's the services. Um, But you've really added some other things. So I I still see you have that print-on-demand partnerships with other people but value-added services i think this is so smart um to be able to get all this work done and it's, it's funny because that's what we require for our clients is we want all that work done <laughs> before they get here don't don't ask us to do it we're not good at this um you can get all that stuff done in china now that's uh do you see that I mean, in your experience, is that just happening more and more? I mean, you're going to be like, duh, of course, Steve. But I mean, just more and more, it's just like (laughs) expected at these factories that this packaging is going to be done this way with these extra things. I mean, is that just normal?
0: Yeah, I guess a lot of it, people are becoming more familiar with Amazon's requirements. So more factories are learning how to do it and open to help sellers do it. But at the same time, companies like me are filling the void as well. So... There's companies like me and other competitors of mine that are basically helping sellers to prep their products, store it, and then ship it to Amazon, uh, to any Amazon marketplace around the world as the inventory is required. So, yeah, we're seeing more and more of, of these kind of shops open up in China rather than in the
1: U.S. Is it hard to get space, warehouse space in China? Is it expensive? I mean, relative, not to Connecticut, there's nothing expensive compared to Connecticut. But, I mean, if you compare <laughs> it to, I mean, are, or is that becoming challenging too?
0: Um, at the moment, it's not bad. As long as you can move out of the big cities into more rural areas within the city, within, you know, larger cities, it's usually okay. So in Shenzhen, we're a bit outside the city. We can never afford anything close to the city. Um and But it's becoming more challenging because as Shenzhen and big cities grow and more tech comes in, uh, the wages are going up. And also, since wages are going up, so are costs of housing. So we see my company and other factories continually moving further and further and further outside of cities. Are um, you, and this is a trend.
1: Are you able to take advantage of technology given where you're at? Um, and if, if so, could you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, I would say one of the big benefits of being in Shenzhen, which is one of the tech centers of uh, China, is there's a lot of software companies that are building logistics uh, software, uh, e-commerce software, ERP systems. And we're able to use, we work with a local software company that helps us, you know, with the software that runs our warehouse, so there's a lot of companies that are offering, and, and Shenzhen itself is one of the largest uh, areas for FBA sellers in China. So there's a whole ecosystem that's been built up in Shenzhen that supports sellers, but also service providers like us in the region. So it's really a, a really key place to be. Not only that, but it's also next to Hong Kong, so the largest air freight hub in the world. So that really gives us a huge advantage when we're offering our logistic services is the, the ecosystem and also the, the logistics that comes from the region.
1: Have you found a sweet spot for the client? You know, your ideal client is not that you wish, what you're really seeing and that you're really able to make a difference for. Because I think that's really important, right? It's, we all want that big giant client until we get them and then we're like, oh crap. What did I do? But it's just, I mean, have you figured out where like the reward for both of you, not just financial where you're like, Hey, I really helped Steve. I mean, it really helped somebody.
0: Yeah. I would say the, the best value that we're starting to provide for people is, uh, sellers that sell in multiple marketplaces. Mm. So if you, if you only sell in the U S it makes the most sense to just take that product, have your factory prep it and then ship it right to FBA, especially since the long-term storage fees are only kicking in after a year now. Um, so there's not a lot of pressure to like sell through, except for Q4. But where we really help is that if you sell in Japan and Europe and the U.S. and Canada, and it's very hard to measure your sales velocity. So instead of taking a whole container and bringing it to the U.S. and then realizing you've been order or you have to replenish your inventory in Japan, it's cheaper just to leave it in China and then fulfill it to those regions as you require the inventory. So that's really where we're providing like the most value, at least for FBA sellers. Um, we do direct from China fulfillment, meaning we ship direct from China to the end customer, and we provide value for dropshippers in that case. So there's kind of two main regions where we're, really, like, really providing
1: value to people. Well, And it it seems very interesting to me what you're talking about because, in you know, in part of the background, you talk about this all-in kilogram pricing where, the way I understand it, right, I don't need to take a full container. I can take a part of container, right? Can you talk about that?
0: Yeah. This is kind of the newest shipping method that people are using in specifically Shenzhen. And I'm surprised that more Western sellers don't know about it. But basically what we're doing is we take, we aggregate a whole bunch of people's uh, cargo and we charge a kilogram rate for the weight, either actual or volumetric that you ship. And that includes the import tax as well. And it goes direct from China to, and it includes everything all the way to the FBA warehouse. And so, you can ship as low as 100 kilograms and it's still quite competitive because all of the port fees and all of those extra fees are shared amongst all the sellers. Um, and this adds a great advantage for small sellers that can't like get enough volume to uh, justify a container. But at the same time, even sellers that need to send over container loads in order to be price competitive on a product, but they sell it through every six months. Mm. So they have to put up so much cash for that cargo. And instead they can order smaller quantities and still take advantage of sea freight and free up more cash. So there's, I'm seeing people use it for two ways, smaller sellers and also even bigger sellers that don't have a very quick sell through rate. Um, to free up cash for themselves.
1: One of the – I always describe this with LTL from our place, for example. Um, we're in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And so what happens is they come and pick it up, and then they bring it to a hub. And then they wait at that hub until they get other Amazon uh, products to fill the uh, the full, um, the full uh, trailer, right? They want it full. Okay. Then they bring it to Amazon, and then – and so it, there's delays with all that, right? And And, you know, depending right. – does this same thing happen in what you're describing? You know, because I would be concerned about that. You know, it's like, hey, you know, I got my hundred kilogram little box to you. Now it's got to sit in a container. I got to wait till the container's fall. Or are we now at such a capacity that you know that just really isn't a, a real additional amount of time?
0: Yeah, actually, it's not a problem just because of the volume. Okay. So there's a couple you know days a week that they go out. And the beauty also is when they bring the container and they open it right up and they pass it usually on directly to UPS. So from there, UPS will bring it to the end uh, FBA warehouse. So it's usually quicker and there's less delays than if you ship by uh, the traditional shipping.
1: What you just said was everything's going to Amazon, so it just makes it easier. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, as opposed to that that hub handling all these other products to it. Hmm the right, other yeah. one that i have a question on because i'm I'm always interested in this is product sourcing support um can you talk a little bit about that because i think that that's again one of the bigger challenges it's you know everybody says they're a factory we all know that they're not right there's some <laughs> are and some aren't lots of them are distributors that adds cost that adds delays and that adds quality uh poor quality opportunities because you know there's another layer uh in there can you talk about that yeah um I mean, it's, it's tough to
0: find who is a factory and who is not. But I also argue that it's not always the most important, Hmm. uh, part of the deal. I actually, people are surprised. I actually work with, (laughs) I work with a trading company and I very well know that they're a trading company, um, but they do so much work that it's worth it for me to, for them to take a margin. Um so I, I wouldn't say that it's always the right play to work directly with the factory however it usually it usually is in most cases. Well what can a trading um,
1: partner in that description I mean other than price obviously you're saying they get a big volume so they get a good price are there something that maybe most people don't think about that they can do differently?
0: Yeah I mean some some trading companies do have a technical expertise uh, so okay. my my trading company has a technical expertise in electronics and they designed our electronic circuit boards themselves and they also designed all the mold stuff. Uh, so all the tooling for our products, they designed and manufactured. Um, and they outsource, uh, they don't outsource the assembly of the product, but they outsource everything else in it. Um, so they more or less trade most of my components they don't make. Um, and, and I know that. And they don't have a big factory or anything. They just have a small office. Um, but they provide kind of technical expertise that I think is valuable. Um,
1: well, you talked about, you know, like most people don't have that engineering background. So that's another place that you can look for expertise. So if you're thinking about getting into the water bottle business, I'm always looking at my water bottle, right? And you just don't <laughs> have the design capabilities. It might not be the manufacturer-only Um, especially because that's probably such a generic item, it's so overwhelming, you might be able to find a trading partner that can offer some of that service too. Hmm. Do they charge for those services or is that part of the cost, You know, part of their margin?
0: Yeah, it's part of their margin. So they're making a margin off me, um, but I am okay with the price that they sell the final component to me for. And so I'm happy with, with the work they do. And I know a lot of other trading companies that are specifically electronic because in Shenzhen is most of the electronics in the world are made. And those uh, trading companies are so professional that it's sometimes worth it to work with them, not only because of their design capability, but also because of the relationships that they have with the factories that you don't. So they're probably still going to get just as good of a price as you could on your own. Just because of all the volume that they have bought over the years and the relationships they built, so it's not always uh, incorrect to say that that a trading company is always more expensive.
1: Well, I, I think it's I think that's solid advice, right? They vet those factories for you if they're if they're a good trading company, right? They've already they've worked with them before. Hmm. Love sure. it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So what's next? So you know you 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 got – I'm sure it's not smooth. You have a well running. Um, Depends on the day, and it depends on the hour. Probably in another hour, it won't be well running. Um, FBA business—you've <laughs> got this side business now that sounds like it's getting more significant, uh, where you're offering lots of services to other sellers. What else have you been thinking about, um, or can you see an end game to this?
0: Yeah, for for me at least, there's like two paths that I might want to take. Um, one is to can you continue to offer services to. Uh, e-commerce sellers specifically in logistics, uh, warehousing and kind of value add so helping them with packaging or helping them prepare mm. products or inspect products. Um, and I'd like to create kind of a e-commerce logistics platform where you can send it to us in China. and wherever you want to distribute your product, we can help you do that. So that that's kind of my goal for my logistics company. Um, and in the future, at least for Amazon, Uh, I'm looking at, uh, maybe purchasing, you know, an Amazon business in the future, just because they sell at such low multiples and I can definitely improve them. So I think it's, you know, at least for your listeners, maybe they don't have to create one from scratch. Um, if they have some capital, they could buy one. Um, and a lot of them sell for two to three times earnings. So if they know, you know, how to make it better, Uh, The payback period on those type of businesses are very quick. So I think those are two areas that, at least for me, I'm kind of eyeing at the moment.
1: (laughs) Well, I think it's smart because if you know the lane, like you know that you. Quality is your thing, and you can cut through all the rest of that stuff. You can unperform an underperforming yeah. Great product. guy, That's great, a great story. <laughs> and, <laughs> sorry and about fix that. Fix those Brian. other issues. Um, and boom, I think, right. uh, don't I think there's so many things to, time, to right? learn from here. The right. uh, uh, as huh. the story goes, Dude, I, uh, think about where you are in your journey. Think about where you're going. Write that stuff down. I like when you talk talking about that dream line. I love that thought of actually tracking where you thought you were going to so go and then what actually happened. They could either go to the website you or they can and, just and send and an email why. Brian. And maybe it makes sense. Maybe it was outside out of your account. control. But at least you know And then you can factor that in going forward. So smart. back to the accounting. You said, I always tell people that that's how you do a budget. It's okay. You know, it's historical until you factor in what things are going to affect you. Well, Brian's taken that approach to his life All right. goal of business. podcast. obviously he's having success with it. Very, very cool story. So reach out to him. It's Brian at Easy. ChinaWarehouse.com. Brian, at Any China that, you com. that you can help and I'm at www.echinawarehouse.com to get Take past care. it.
0: Yeah, I would say uh, two things. One is definitely try to choose something that you enjoy or you like or you have some type of passion about because when things do get tough and it's really hard, it's much easier to get through those challenges when you know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but also that you enjoy the product or the service that you're selling. Uh, so it makes it less painful during those times. Um, and the second thing I would say is just to write down, I, one of the key things that I think makes me more successful is that I have a to-do list of the day, of the week, and then I have goals for like one year, five years, and 10 years, all written down. And they're not just business goals. And if you have them written down and you know what they are and you can reference them when you're in those times, you know that, you know, this pain is for that achievement that you're working towards. So knowing what they are and knowing and reminding yourself of that, I think helps you through that really tough, tough time. (laughs) Mm.
1: How much time do you put into that uh, tracking and that kind of thing? Let's give people some perspective. I mean, is it, you know, an hour a week? Is it an hour, you know, five hours a week? I mean, can you give us some perspective?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I actually have a good friend where we make, we make a thing. It's not even a term coined by me. I think it's a term coined by Tim Ferriss at the four hour work week where he had people create a dream line and it's basically a a document. You can create it however you like and it holds you to what you want to do in your life, you know, in the, in the near term, in the, in in the far out, you know, 10 years from now. And we share these things with each other and not only do, do we do that, but we kind of push each, push each other to achieve them. So we'll ask each other our progress on them and we'll keep up to date with my friend on, on what I'm doing to get to that goal. And I think having that friend to push you, and also just writing it down. I, I literally just keep it in Excel sheet. Um, so it's not anything I spend specifically a long time writing or putting it up. But I do spend time re-reviewing it with my friend to keep each other honest. Um, and if you have someone that's like a mentor or someone that you get along very well with that can understand you and your goals, I think it's something that can really help push you to, 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 get, to go get them, you know?
1: Love it. Dude, there's there's no doubt uh everybody's nodding saying, Okay, now I get why he's having so much success. Um <laughs> and, and I'm sure you weren't doing all that way back in the day, and hence the reason you got into this place. Very awesome, very cool story, Um, easychinawarehouse.com. Reach out to Brian at easychinawarehouse.com, and find out some more. Go check out his website because uh, it's pretty neat, some of the things. I love the idea about packaging. Most people miss that. That's such an opportunity. Um, Very, very cool. I thank you so much. I wish you nothing but success.
0: Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: Great guy, great guy, great story. <laughs> Sorry about that, Brian. Um, I, think, uh, I think there's so many things to, to learn from here. Uh, as the story goes, uh, think about where you are in your journey. Think about where you're going and then write that stuff down. Um, I like what he's talking about, that dream line. I love that thought of actually tracking you know, where you thought you were going to go and then what actually happened and look at that delta between and, and, and figure out why. And maybe it makes sense. Maybe it was outside of your control, but at least you know, and then you can factor that in going forward. So smart. It's back to the accounting. I always tell people that's how you do a budget. You know, It's historical until you factor in what things are going to affect you. Well, Brian's taken that approach to his life um, and his business, and obviously he's having success with it. Very, very cool story. So reach out to him. It's uh, Brian at EasyChinaWarehouse.com. Brian at EasyChinaWarehouse.com. And I'm at ecommercemomentum.com. Take it Thanks for listening to the eCommerce Momentum Podcast.
0: All the links mentioned today can be found at ecommercemomentum.com under this
1: episode number. Please remember to subscribe and like us on iTunes.